Hello, everyone. As you guys come into the live webinar, we are very excited to have everybody. This is our 24th installment of the Phenotip Speaker Series. Like every time we get up a number, I'm like, wow, how have we done so many of these? But uh, it's fantastic. So I'm your host, Kira Deneen. Today, we're going to be talking about navigating barriers in LGBTQIA plus genetic care. And as many of you know, this is a topic that's very close to my heart as someone that's um, in the queer community. And our Pride episode, you know, for last June um, was my favorite episode so far of the Phenotype Speaker Series. So if you haven't heard that, definitely go back and listen to that one. Um, it was fantastic. We also want to acknowledge that today is Juneteenth. This commemorates the emancipation of enslaved African-Americans. It's important to honor the Juneteenth holiday as it allows each generation to reflect on what more there is to do. We want to acknowledge that the Black members of the LGBTQIA community are the most vulnerable members of the community and face the greatest barriers to receiving accessible and affirming care. Um, so, you know, I'm sure that there will be different aspects that come up. I know I have a couple questions, um, you know, related to that. But thank you, everybody who is trickling in and tuning in. We really appreciate you taking time today, um, especially if it is, um, you know, you're off of work because of Juneteenth. So we really appreciate you taking time and joining us for this really important discussion today. As an overview, today we are going to do a panel discussion with our amazing panelists. We're going to get to introdu introductions very soon. And we want to focus on your questions as well. As you guys know, if you have listened to me host anything before, I always have lots and lots of questions, um, but I want to prioritize everybody listening and watching this, especially the people live for the questions that you guys all have. So please use the chat box. Um, believe you should have a Q&A version of that where you can submit questions. And we are, I will keep my eye on it, but we're probably going to answer more of those in the last 15 minutes of this webinar. And the webinar is about uh, 75 minutes today. So yes, please submit your questions throughout. So as you think of them, just put them in the Q&A box. The sponsor for this series is Phenotips. Phenotips is a complete solution for medical genetics. Phenotips offers software and services that reflect the diversity of modern families and ease genetic professionals' workflow, which I think we all can acknowledge that sometimes EMRs, EHRs are not designed for genetics. So it's really great that Phenotips genomic health record includes tools like inclusive pedigree builders, human phenotype ontology, capture, and diagnostic insights. And so we really, you know, acknowledge that it can be hard. Not all pedigree builders are built so that we can use it the way we want to be using it and be really um, inclusive and gender affirming. Um, so, you know, it's, it's great that uh, Phenotips offers that. That's one of uh, my favorite features of it. In light of the pandemic, this is actually how the Phenotype Speaker Series started, and we've just kept it going. So we're on year three, I think, um, this month, I want to say, if not next month. Um, so as I mentioned, I'm Kira Dineen. My pronouns are she, her. I'm your host for this webinar. As I mentioned, for people that are you know, joining now that didn't hear me at the beginning, um, this is very relevant and important to me, as well as a lot of uh, team members um, on my Phenotips team as being part of the queer community. Um, I'm also in a same-sex relationship and everything. And I am the host of DNA Today, which is a genetics podcast. So similar to this, this episode is actually going to be released on DNA Today um, to celebrate Pride Month. Um, our podcast has won a few awards over the years. We've got over 240 episodes in the last decade, and we have a lot of genetic conversations just like we're going to have on this one today. And in terms of the genetic space, I guess I should mention that I'm also a prenatal genetic counselor, so I've been doing that for a few years. But 
enough chit chat. I want to hear from our guests. So we're going to have everybody introduce themselves, especially for people listening to this as a podcast and trying to figure out whose voice is who. This is where you want to tune in to be like, who's who's who? Um, so Janine, I would love for you to start us out with introductions. Sure. Um, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for having us, Kira. Um, I'm Janine Austin. I My pronouns are they, them. And I'm a board certified genetic counselor uh, based in Vancouver, British Columbia, and I specialize in psychiatric conditions. I'm a professor in psychiatry and medical genetics here. The next on my list is Andy. <laughs> I can unmute myself. Hi, I'm Andy. I am a prenatal genetic counselor. Uh, located in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I am a non-binary person myself. And for the last few years, I've done a lot of advocacy, um, particularly in the genetic counseling space, but uh, also beyond um, for trans and non-binary uh, competency, because it's very much work that is about keeping uh, myself and my loved ones and my community uh, safe, particularly in the current uh, moment that we are in, which I'm sure we're gonna get more into. Definitely. And next on my list is Katie, who's also kind of New Yorker. <laughs> Hi there. Yes, my name is Katie Gallagher. My pronouns are she, her. I'm also a certified genetic counselor focused in pediatric care, and I'm also the assistant program director at Sarah Lawrence College. Um, I identify as gay. I'm in a same-sex marriage, um, and uh, I've worked to incorporate this types of topics into the curriculum at Sarah Lawrence. And Joe. Hi, maybe you'll be able to identify me as, as the British voice on the panel. Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, my name's Joe Giblin or Josephine Giblin, uh, she, her. I am a genetic counselor in Bristol in the United Kingdom. And over the last few years, I've particularly been focusing on improving cancer genetic services for, for our trans patients, trans and gender diverse patients. Um, so that's, that's me. Yeah. Well, that is lovely. As you guys can tell, we have a phenomenal panel. I am just, I've been so excited. I've been looking forward to this for weeks. So I'm very excited to get into all of the questions. And again, guys, as you have questions, throw them in that Q and a box. I figured we could start really defining a little bit before we get into, you know, the, the meat of our conversation. So want you guys to think about um, how you define cultural competency in the context of LGBTQIA plus genetic care and what role education and training plays in improving the cultural competency of genetic professionals, especially, you know, most of us are genetic counselors. Um, so, you know, looking at it from that lens, um, since it's the first question, I don't know if anyone wants to start us out, feel free to unmute yourselves um, or I will randomly choose one of you. <laughs> I can uh, start with some of my thoughts on that. Uh, I think that from my perspective, cultural competency, especially in this area, doesn't mean knowing every experience, every term, every law. It's the act of listening to your patients in the communities that you serve, respecting their preferences, their beliefs, their goals, considering equities and inequities in society and healthcare and your institution. And as a healthcare provider, working to reduce those um, barriers as much as you can for all people to get ideal, well-rounded healthcare. And that learning in some cases starts off in formal education, like our training programs. And I think that's a very important place for it to start. Um, but it can also come from 
reputable online sources, talking to individuals in these communities, um, hearing their stories, whether it be in person or social media, talking to your patients, asking them about their experiences, and no matter what the source is, um, being committed to that subject matter. And part of that is because what we taught five years ago in training programs is somewhat outdated, right? We all know that the terms, the medical interventions, the laws are changing so constantly that it really is commitment to improving your cultural competency over time. And that this isn't just a one-time event. Um, so for me, it's considered kind of a lifetime of listening. I love that. I just want to pick up on it, I think, a little bit, Katie. Um, absolutely agree with everything that you said. And I think one of the things that scares people in this space is not knowing what all of the terms mean and not knowing what the best terminology is right now, etc. And so therefore, basically stay away from the whole thing, which is that's not that's not okay. Um, so one of the things, so I was just speaking at the European Society of Human Genetics meeting last week on um, the new pedigree nomenclature, which I think we're going to talk about a bit later. Um, but one of the things that I shared there was some of the mistakes and harms that I've done in the past um, by not knowing any better, basically. And I shared one of my favorite quotes, um, which was, it's, it's there everything great in the world is by Maya Angelou, in my opinion. Um, anyway, and so she said some awesome stuff about, you know, um, do the best you can until you know better. And when you know better, do better. Um, so everything that you just said about lifetime um, learning, like that's really what we're talking about here. So I think it's a matter of don't get freaked out about making mistakes. We'll all make mistakes. It's what you do when you make mistakes that matters. And so are you committed to doing better in the future or are you just going to run away and hide? Um, so, you know, I'm in the camp of I very much want to continue throughout my life to learn and grow and do better. Um, I'm not a perfect human. I won't ever be one, but I'm going to continue to try and do better over time. And that's such a great approach to share your own aspects of, oh, I maybe wouldn't say this today, or I would phrase it differently in highlighting that. I think that's fantastic, Janine. And and I have to agree, Maya Angelou has the best quotes. Um, you know, we could do a whole podcast on that. Um, Joe, Andy, anything to add in there? I suppose, um, yeah, playing into how language and terminology changes. Someone was highlighting to me recently talking about cultural competency, about moving towards thinking of it as cultural humility, which I hadn't I hadn't really come across this before. I'd always been thinking of cultural competency, but I think it it captures it in maybe you know a more helpful way. You're never going to be culturally competent. You're never going to know everything. And maybe the aim isn't try to know everything, but to have that humility to know that you're constantly learning, you're constantly got to be um, yeah, looking at yourself, looking at your own implicit biases and, and what you do and what you don't know. And yeah, not, not ever aiming for the goal of I know everything, but aiming for that constant learning, I guess. Um, I, lo I love that, that phrase, um, trying to adapt more to that. <laughs> Just like we do in genetics, like you, yeah. you're, you're not going to just in grad school. Oh, this is what we know now. Like I graduated three years ago. There there's things that are now outdated as Katie was kind of alluding to before. Um, so I think that we, we, we already are in that training as genetic counselors and genetic professionals. So it's just like, let's expand that outside of just the science aspect. Um, we've heard so many great things. Annie, Andy, anything else to add in? 
I love that cultural humility so much. I'm going to like, I feel like that's going to change the way that I think about it a little bit. Um, I completely agree with everything that everybody else has said. Um, particularly, I, I appreciated Janine talking about like how there there is so much fear of like making a mistake. Like we're all afraid of making a mistake. I think partially because like we're afraid that we're going to like hurt somebody, um, but also, you know, afraid that like somebody's going to judge us for something. Um, when I teach uh, uh, grad students um, about like the trans and non-binary community, an exercise that I have them do is I actually have them practice making mistakes. And I think that's a really important part of uh, cultural humility is like to be open to like, you are going to make mistakes sometimes. That's okay. That's normal. It doesn't mean that you like are destroying this relationship or doing anything wrong or fundamentally a bad person, but you can take that moment and uh, create something positive with it instead of, you know, kind of taking it in and needing to like, uh, you know, defend yourself or like, uh, you know, get like, uh, you know, uh, that person to like absolve you of your sin of like making a mistake. Um, so I, I teach, uh, you know, making mistakes and moving on quickly, genuinely apologizing, and then trying to do better after you make that mistake. Completely agree. And I think part of this continuation of learning, I think starts with understanding some of the specific challenges and barriers that people in our community experience, especially when seeking out genetic care, as that is our audience today. So what are some of these barriers and challenges that you guys think of and how can genetic professionals support access to equitable care for LGBTQIA individuals? Um, anybody have you know an immediate thought when hearing that in terms of challenges and barriers? Yeah, Joe, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Um... It's, it's impossible to try and, you know, summarize all of these immense things in like a concise way. But I've been trying to sort of think of these interconnecting issues of, of like cultural humility and the issues that it can cause patients when we don't have that cultural humility, you know, inappropriate behavior or language or understanding um is always going to get in the way of people seeking healthcare so many people not seeking healthcare because of the experiences that they've had or anticipating having bad experiences um and that all plays into as well like physical barriers to care you know policies and forms that don't meet your needs um, yeah, even patient information leaflets and, you know, the posters that are gendered or heteronormative and then playing into the sort of whole can of worms that is sort of altered risk profiles, whether that comes from like sociocultural factors, minority stresses that build up over a lifetime or, or specifically for transgender diverse community gender affirming treatments that can have an impact on on people's risk profiles for heart disease or cancer and all of those things that sort of just this Venn diagram of overlapping issues that um that it just feels sometimes like a, a barrier that we'll never be able to take down but we've got to slowly disassemble it and and yeah not rely on just patients in the community to take those down and and be you know the advocates for our patients and try and disassemble these piece by piece 
Yeah, I think just to use my own personal experience a little bit, um, you know, as an agender person, um, whenever I, and I, with a female body, you know, I, every time I access healthcare, um, there's just a whole bunch of like assumptions that get forced on you um, and that feel profoundly uncomfortable and that make me feel like I cannot be who I am. Um, and so that reduces my willingness to actually talk to healthcare providers. It reduces my willingness to engage with healthcare providers. And just, in, you know, and again, I shared this at ESHG last week, so I don't care about too much information at this point. So because I've had so many sort of like negative experiences with healthcare providers around my body and how that relates to my gender, I haven't been for PAP in like eight years, I've never had a mammogram, I'm 47, right? I know, so I know everybody that there are self-collection kits and that kind of thing. I don't have access to them yet in Vancouver. I know, thank you for your concern in advance. Um, but <laughs> but it's, it's um, you know, so, so this has real impact on people and I'm using myself as a personal example because I don't want people to think that this is something abstract that happens in the ether to somebody else. It doesn't, it happens to people you know. Um, and as a result of these kinds of things, I'm fully aware that the LGBTQ community and trans and non-binary people have worse health outcomes as a result of failing to access care like I am. Um, you know, it's it's not that I don't know it's there. I do know it's there, um, but I also know what it's like. And that really puts me off going. So what we can do as professionals who engage in the healthcare system and providing care is is to do our level best Um to try to make it feel like a safe space for people who don't fit into the heteronormative framework that we're used to applying to everybody. Um, you know, don't ask, is your husband with you if it's a prenatal appointment? Um, I can see lots of eye rolling and head nodding just in case anybody's listening. And yes. <laughs> Big yes to that, Janine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I can even, you know, share like I, a lot of that I is, you know, resonates with me because when I've gone to GYN appointments and just, you know, annuals, you know, they're like, oh, you're not on birth control. Like, you know, and then they start asking questions and I'm like, hmm, I'm going to see how long it takes them to figure out I'm gay. Like, you know, and it's kind of a game in my head. And it's like, you know, I, I'm someone that is just kind of hearing this and I'm like, all right, this is interesting. But like earlier in my life, that was really hard that they're just assuming that like, oh, are you married? No. Do you have a husband or a boyfriend? No. And it's just, and it's frustrating, especially it's like, I've been here before. Like you didn't write it down somewhere. You didn't look at my paperwork that I'm checking off different boxes. Like, so it's, it's frustrating, but frustration is just the first emotion, I think. Cause there's so much more to that Janine as, as you're sharing. And, th and thank you for sharing like a personal story. Cause I know that can, you know, that can be uh, hard to do, but you're such an open person. And, and I, I really look up to you in that way. Um, any other thoughts on challenges, barriers before I kind of expand into other areas for us to chat about? Andy? Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing your personal experience, Janine, because that is such a like incredibly ubiquitous uh, experience like within our community. I'm part of a ton of like um, Facebook groups like in New York for like trans and non-binary people that are mutual support groups for like what, whatever you need, like your community is going to come in and help you. The number one question that gets asked on those communities are we're going to go for X type of medical care where I will be treated respectfully. Uh, because if you don't know for a fact, like if you haven't had like somebody else go to the same place and like tell you like, oh, yep, they're great. Like they 
you know, they'll call you by your pronouns. They'll call you by your name. Uh, you know, they're not going to be weird about like, you not having legally changed your name or stuff like that. Uh, if you don't know that you're going to go in with the assumption that you're not going to be treated that way, which is not like not a bad assumption to have going in because you need to protect yourself. Like it's, we are not in a safe space. Like when, when we as trans and non-binary people and queer people are going into medical settings, that's not a safe space for us. And we shouldn't actually be assuming that we're safe because we're probably not. The onus is on the healthcare provider to show us that we are safe. And one thing that I think it's important to highlight as we're talking to healthcare providers is if you like are a good healthcare provider to somebody in our community, word is going to spread. Like word will get around. Like our word of mouth is really, really powerful because we need to know in advance whether where we're going is safe. Completely agree. I think it's great that there are communities where you can share those people. And, and I know a couple, you know, GYNs that are, that are great in my area, some that I've worked with that I'm like, oh, great. Now I have a great person to recommend for people in my area. Um, but that's fantastic, especially just like how many people live in New York, um, you know, in the kind of surrounding area um, that I would hope that there's other communities like that, especially online in other areas, you know, of the, of the world and everything. Um, you know, also wanted to expand the conversation a little bit too of, you know, we've kind of mentioned, but I want to dive a little further into it of how genetic professionals can create psychologically safe and inclusive environments for people in our community. And some of the common concerns or fears that patients have when seeking genetic care, because I think we've hit the surface, but I want to go a little bit deeper with that. And just for most people that are listening, they're offering patient care in some way or maybe they're they're educating doctors and different things maybe they're more GSL MSL roles. So what are things that we can think about to make these better spaces for LGBTQ+ people? Yeah, I think something that's been hit on a little bit already is the fact that your individual care to a patient matters a lot and there's a lot we can do with our own interaction with patients. But then it goes beyond that. There's potentially 20 other people someone interacts with before they even get to your office and you're losing people in every step in that process. Um, so it's about things that have already been brought up, like supporting your patients through that whole journey, making sure that they're treated respectfully by every person they interact with, every form they fill out, every online system they use, that it can represent their preferences, their identities, and their goals for their healthcare moving forward. Um, and that comes with advocating within your own institution, I think a lot of people think of advocacy at like the federal legislative level, right? But even advocating within your own institution and within the own po the policies that exist there and the forms they fill out are all going to potentially be these tiny little details for anyone who doesn't identify in this community. And they may not even realize why this can have such a large impact, but makes a big difference to this community. Um, and so thinking about it from not just your interaction with patients, but where the patient's journey before they get to you as well, um, I think can really help with that. Yeah, that's such wanna, a good point, Katie. Go ahead, Andy. I just want to jump on that real quick um, because uh, intake forms are like my personal soapbox because when I go into a doctor's office, um, so often, like when I'm filling out forms, you know, I'm seeing like, what is your gender, M or F? And like, what that's saying to me is, it's not occurring to you that I exist, right? Like you, you that's sort of not in your realm of consciousness. So 
I'm in a place where I am likely to either need to educate you about, hi, I've, I am a person who exists and you should maybe know that, or decide that I'm going to let you continue to not like be uh, aware that I exist and just sort of fly under the radar, which I frequently do when I go to doctor's offices because I like, as, you know, as a, a gender non-conforming person, like I don't really believe it's necessary for me most of the time to disclose that information. I happen to be somebody who knows a little bit about genetics, right? Who knows that this could be important information in certain circumstances, but I think it's important for us to realize that a lot of trans and non-binary patients uh, aren't necessarily going to know that, and it's not going to occur to them that that's important information to share, and they might be doing the thing that they do frequently to keep themselves safe, which is fly under the radar, and we could be missing really important information there. So having intake forms right off the bat that are, like, including us, like, saying, like, uh, you know, are you assigned male at birth, assigned female at birth, or other, uh, you know, do you identify as long list of genders they could identify as? or just, you know, a free write, like a box, I think is better. Um, asking what your pronouns are right off the bat, um, making sure that we actually look at those pronouns, like that, you know, everybody in the office is informed, like you should check the pronouns before you, you know, shout something about this patient, like across the, uh, you know, entryway or something. Um, and to just like have that information be gathered right off the bat, number one, to show that person, we understand that you exist and we are interested in giving you the proper care based on who you are as a person um, so that, you know, they can be communicated that they might be safer in that uh, situation. And so that we can then take that information and like actually use it and give them better care. I think that is fantastic. What a sound bite, right? Like right there, like that is just so great. Um, Katie, what were you saying? I was just going to say that I think anyone who works in the genetic space, we interact with patients with rare diseases and very different communities, but one thing I've noticed that have in common is that when you go into a doctor's office, you're like prepared to have to educate the provider about yourself in a way that, that um, you know, you're almost talking in new terminology they've never heard before. And it can get really exhausting. It can get exhausting for patients who have rare diseases. It can be exhausting for someone who feels like they have to prove to you that they're worthy of care um, in a strange way. And so I think this advocacy can be thought of in a similar way a lot of the time. And something for genetic providers, we're already you know, kind of thinking about and to just expand who that who are the communities we can apply those same thought processes to. Definitely. Janine, I think you were going to jump in as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that there's a lot that we can do. Yeah, exactly. I just want to pick up on the advocacy piece, what we can do, but also what we can do in terms of advocacy within our institutions. So, for example, um, if somebody put in the question and answer box, like, how do you like, what do you do with, you know, front desk staff, for example? Yeah, How do you get people to look at the forms? That stuff really matters. Like it, you can have the best forms in the world that have all of the lovely options for people to say, you know, what the sex was assigned at birth, what gender they currently identify. If you're not looking at that, it doesn't make any difference. So I had an experience the other day where I got one of these intake form thingies and it was asking me about honorifics. It was online, right? And I had to check a box for the honorific in order to move on to complete the rest of the form. And so there was Mr. Ms. Ms. whatever. There was doctor. I am in fact a doctor. So I checked the doctor box. Um, anyhow, so I get to the place where, you know, that had requested me to fill out this form. Um, they had printed it off and uh, the person behind the desk was looking at it as uh, they were talking to me. And um, they said, hello, Ms. Austin. 
I'm like, well, that was worth everybody's time, wasn't it? Uh, you know, and so in, in you're like, also like, um, it's doctor to you also. It's exactly. like, come so, on. But truly, Kira, so, you know, in one tiny word, which is only two letters long, you've managed to misgender me and not in fact, you know, if it's supposed to be in quote unquote honorific, you've done the exact opposite of that right now. What like, was the point of filling it out? It's like that it's so frustrating. And it's like, so, yeah, I, it's so, like, actually, I'd rather not go through with this appointment I you know it, exactly you know so it's it's those initial interactions that you have so there's 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 public facing stuff like is your clinic gendered is it the women something something then you know who are you who are you alienating who are you pushing away who doesn't feel welcome there etc um and is that okay um and then you know those first interactions that you have do really matter like you know what do your bathrooms look like is there an all gender bathroom do you have visible signs of allyship do you have, do you know what i mean it's all those things all those things matter they may feel small but they do create an environment or atmosphere that's welcoming or not yeah and i think katie also kind of hinted at something that it's not just the patient's pronouns too but looking at you know, in the pediatric setting, looking at the children's pronouns to see what those are, depending on ages too, that that's going to be a big factor, but also partners. So going in, you know, I'm not a parent yet, hope to be someday, but like, you know, eventually when I'm going in and bringing my child, I would hope that they're not assuming my partner is he, him, because I, you know, come off as, um, you know, more uh, feminine. So, you know, it's just, I think it's, it's expanding out. And, and I was really, you know, you know, Andy, you were talking a lot about intake forms and what to include on there. And that's kind of like a green flag of like, oh, they're asking pronouns. This seems to be a good setup if you don't know of someone that's been to that place before. And so for me, it was really important. Like we did, we redid all of our intake forms and, and we got a lot of, you know, we had team meetings about it, which would include this and this, and what's the best way to do this. And, um, you know, having an, an assortment of checkoff boxes and also blanks for every single question. And so I think that's really important, but also that we included partners pronouns and everything, because, you know, as someone that's taking a pedigree, I want to know how am I referring to their partner? And I used to kind of do it. Like I would wait until they said a pronoun and it would unlock it in my brain to then use a pronoun and would just use first names until then. You guys have probably noticed I've been using mostly people's first names more to say who I'm talking to, because there's so many of us, but that's also easy too, if you don't know pronouns. Um, but, you know, I think one thing that we've, Janine has definitely hinted at is pedigree nomenclature. And we definitely have to dedicate some time to this. So I want to, you know, throw it out there, the question of what are strategies and best practices to implement to ensure that family history collection is inclusive and representative of people. And, you know, especially as we're talking about people in our community and LGBTQIA+. And really want to look at what's changed because oftentimes when I'm asking questions of, oh, what's changed in genetics, we're talking about like, you know, over the decades, this and that. We're not talking decades. We're talking years, if not months. So Janine, I would love for you to kind of start us off with this conversation because, um, you know, a lot has changed from 2020 to now in terms of pedigree nomenclature. Um, and you were, you know, a co-author on a paper, I believe it was September 2022. So within the last year. Um, so where, where do we kind of start from, I guess, and what has changed, I guess, is my first question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll start by telling you about how this came about. So basically, so I'm a researcher, right? I'm a full-time tenured academic. That's what I do. I research things. And, and around 
2000, between the years of about 2004, 2007, it became painfully clear to me that I didn't actually really understand what the difference was between sex and gender. I was forced to confront it because I got invited to sit on um, our national, like federal funding agency on a particular grant review panel that was looking at grants to do with gender, sex and health. <laughs> so, cause I'd been funded by them weirdly enough because I had a grant to study um, postpartum depression in at-risk women, right? So I'd been funded by them. So now they invited me to sit on that review panel and I realized I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So I better try and figure it out. So anyway, learned about sex being, you know, about biological stuff. And there's all sorts of different dimensions of sex. It's not just chromosomes. There's body morphology, genitalia, gonads, hormones, you name it. None of those things are binary, by the way. And they may or may not align with each other. It's all very messy and confusing. It's awesome. And then gender is a social construct. Um, and we expect people's gender to align with the sex that they were assigned at birth. But Sometimes, often it doesn't. And um, yeah, so so then there are different elements around gender as well. So gender identity, gender expression. And again, those things may or may not align with each other. None of it's binary. Good times. Um, so learned all of this around 2007, 2008. And that made me realize that I didn't have a clue as a genetic counselor what I was drawing on pedigrees. Like when you're drawing a square or a circle, I was like, so what is that? Is that sex or gender? So I went back to the 2008 pedigree nomenclature guidelines and there's a box of text that's underneath one of the figures in there. That is the most confusing box of text I've ever seen in my life. I agree. Um, <laughs> please, please, if you haven't looked at it, and I'm not saying this to diss the authors, I'm not. It's it's a moment in time. And it's that whole thing I said earlier about the Maya Angelou thing, do the best you can until you know better. And when you know better, do better. So that box of text is 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 a hot mess I'm just going to call it like it conflates sex and gender and it talks about how and and so it goes back and forth within the same paragraph about you know sex things and gender things and then it sort of finishes off by saying that what the squares and circles etc represent is quote unquote phenotypic gender and I was like I don't really know what that that is actually yeah. I don't um, know what that is either no no <laughs> like no, that's exactly. not a thing <laughs> so um so that sort of percolated quietly in the back of my mind for a while making me feel very uncomfortable until round about 2017 when I came across an awesome student here at UBC Heather Barnes who was very interested in doing some work with the trans and non-binary community so what we ended up doing was a qualitative study where she recruited people with trans and non-binary gave them a bit background information and said to them about pedigrees and asked them how what they thought you know, they would like how they would like to be represented. And the thing that came out so clearly was that people felt very strongly that the symbols we draw, squares, circles, etc., um, should represent gender and not sex. They understood that sex was super important to, to be able to document too, because of the things that we're trying to do to help people in genetics. So they were like, okay, well, you can document sex alongside the symbol representing gender. So you can write... AFAB, assigned female at birth, AMAB, assigned male at birth, um, or, you know, the acronym we use is UAAB, so unassigned at birth, so for the intersex people. Um, and so what we ended up with was very clear, um, and people discussed all sorts of different options, but what they wanted was squares to represent men boys, circles to represent women girls, and diamonds to represent non-binary people like me. 
So historically in genetics, the, the um, diamond has been used, but it was always, <laughs> oh, it makes me hurt to say this, but it was always used when gender wasn't relevant. Like, I don't even remember what the exact terms were in the 2008 paper, but it's like when it doesn't matter, when it's irrelevant. When you're drawing siblings and you're just like, it, yeah, there's exactly. five of them, they're healthy. Just Yeah, whatever. And, and just FYI, you can still use it in that way with the number inside the diamond, but... Um, for a single person, diamond has a very specific meaning now. It means non-binary, somebody in that gender diversity sort of um, umbrella place. Um, and, and then you can uh, you can identify. So for me, in a pedigree, I'm a diamond with AFAB annotated alongside it, assigned female at birth. Um, so the other lovely thing about the paper that I really enjoy is that in, in the example pedigrees that we have in the paper, they are no longer heteronormative. Hey, <laughs> finally. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so I'm also in a same sex relationship. Um, this was super important to me, um, as it was to a mem uh, other members of the writing group. Um, and, um, yeah, we no longer are endorsing or pushing this, um, the norm that was you put the squares on the left. Like, what is that about exactly? You know, oh, I'm learning this in real time. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we realized after publishing the primary paper that that wasn't actually clear. So we got some questions, um, but it was something that we discussed. So we actually published like um, a follow-up commentary to the paper, which is like, yeah, I think Bob called it both sides now or something. Um, but, but yeah, so it's, it talks about the rationale behind not putting you know, the squares specifically on the left all the time. Um, so yeah, it's totally, um, we tried really hard to not be engaging in the cis heteronormativity that previous stuff had engaged in. And um, is it perfect? No. Will the nomenclature change over time? Yes. Um, is it the best we can do right now? Yeah, probably just about, you know, could we, you know, there's always things that could have been better, but like, is it a step forward? Also, yes, 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 it is. And yeah. I think one thing to pull out of that because, you know, I, I've kind of read the paper and, and have read other works that you've done, Janine, and, and that a big change of this new nomenclature is that people in our community were involved in this decision making, which is a big part that I remember reading in your paper that it didn't, it wasn't clear if that was the case for like the 2008 and like, you know, the previous papers with nomenclature um, for pedigree. So I think that is just a, an incredible aspect to that. Um, keeping an eye on the time because I could talk to you guys for hours. Um, any other comments before I move on to like legislation? Joe, please. Uh, I just got to do the awkward thing of in the UK, we came up with slightly different recommendations. Ah, yes. Let's span out from Canada and the US. Um, and it will be really great to see in the future how hopefully we'll evolve together and come up with an international guideline but um we uh, last year it's a real shame the, the paper is so close to being published but it's not quite out yet so i can't point you to it but we did a we held a consensus meeting last year looking at the um at how to care for trans and gender diverse patients specifically in cancer genetics and we got together there was, there was about 80 or 90 people and we had trans and gender diverse patients, members of the public, um, lots of genetic counselors, clinical geneticists like surgeons, uh, endocrinologists, people from um, from different advocacy charities. It, it was a really nice meeting to, to sort of review 
review guidelines and vote on them sort of real time in a meeting. And we sort of ultimately when it went along with much of the same that you should, I, you know, trans men should be represented as a square, trans women as a circle. But we sort of followed along from a paper from um, Rubes Walsh and Alex, Alex von Valpel Klein. It's a really nice paper about um, from the following a talk from the World Congress of Genetic Counseling where they'd, they'd suggested a hexagon to represent non-binary um, patients. And we sort of settled on, you know, maybe this isn't the ideal long-term solution, but until we've got a, an interim to use, is this a nice, is, felt like a nice, everyone sort of felt that it was a nice way to identify themselves, not, not a circle, not a square. And I think just trying to get a separate thing from, from the diamond being this pre-existing um, symbol, but it's, it's also nice to hear that, you know, maybe we can make the diamond its own, own thing and rethink the diamond as being a historically indeterminate thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's just interesting to see how yeah come to different different conclusions across the world. Conclusions, that's not the word. Different interim solutions, perhaps. And I just want to respond to that because um, I did present about this work at ESHG last week and I talked to Beth Code about this. And um, so she got up at the end of the talk and asked the question so, and basically said exactly the same thing. She said the reason that it, for this community that the um, that the diamond was not favoured was because it already had a meaning. And my response was, so the re so we we considered literally everything. We considered half squares, half circles. We considered um triangles we considered upside down triangles absolutely not historical hideousness associated with that one thank you very much um we considered hexagons the problem but there's a multitude of like practical problems with them um in terms of the epic software all of the other softwares that we use doesn't exist even the stupid little templates we use don't don't have it so where we ended up was that no the the diamonds may have meant some stuff in the past they do not any longer we're celebrating a brand new approach to things actually and so um with with that sort of mindset to it um it, it the diamond was the favored option so it's practically more applicable and we can do it now and we are very purposefully moving away from what it historically has been used to represent to what it represents now moving forward um and there is a difference because the annotation with amab afab etc so it it's a it's a very distinct thing then um, and it moves away from how it's historically been applied in the past so it's pragmatic and it's respectful and celebratory was the sort of the ideas behind it. But I really appreciate the the sort of the discussion around how it came up. I think it's really important. Yeah, it will be interesting to see if we do get to a point of like international standards. Like I could see that happening, you know, down the road, but it makes sense now of just people talking within their communities, within, you know, their regions to see what works. Um, so another aspect that I really wanted to talk about um, is legislation, which is obviously going to differ. You know, we have UK, Canada, America represented here in the US. So, and I want Andy to kind of start out of talking about this, but I'll, I'll, I'll cue the question up. So, um, so as of June 1st of 2023, so like, you know, almost 20 days ago, 
There have been 491 bills that have been introduced to the U.S. that attack our community of the LGBTQA+. And this is according to ACLU. And Andy, you were part of writing a paper that was you know, bringing up this statistic. And I wanted to allow time to talk about this as it's very timely. And just, I... I struggle to even come up with the right wording for this of just, you know, how how terrible it is. Like, I'm not going to be able to even come up and do justice with wording. But I did want to have a conversation of how this is changing our healthcare landscape and how legislation is directly impacting this, especially with genetic care for people that do identify as being in our community. And, you know, however you want to take this or whatever your thoughts are in terms of what current legislation is there that maybe people need to be contacting their local representatives to say that, you know, either they support a bill or do not support a bill, depending on, you know, if that is supporting our community or not. Um, And other ways that us all on this call here, a call to actions, because I know your paper talked about call to actions of what can we do to really make things right as we you know, progress with time, because we're getting more progressive, but there's certain aspects that I, I think, unfortunately, we, I, from my perspective, we're going backwards a little bit, unfortunately. So Andy, what, what can I do? What can everybody listening, what can they do? And, and what are the legislations? So many questions, answer what you want <laughs> <Yeah>. to. <laughs> Super easy. Not, yeah, not right, just really all. casual, Andy. Just cover all of that uh, in two minutes. No. Yeah, no, it's def- definitely like, I, I I, for sure can't solve it right now today. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I was involved in um, putting together a, uh, a an article that was a call to action to the genetics community. Um, and the call to action is number one, to... Uh, organizationally, not not just on like a grassroots level, but really like the big organizations um, put out position statements uh, saying, uh, you know, all, all of these laws that are telling us that uh, chromosomes and gender are the same thing. Scientifically, they are not. And we as the genetics community that are the experts in this stuff that you are saying is the rationale for all of these hateful laws, this scientific rationale is simply false. So we as an entire genetics community need to actually use our position and our expertise to push back against all of these laws. Um, just using like literally they are using science, science incorrectly in a way that we can push back against um, that we are very well positioned to do. And the other call to action was uh, for uh, our genetics organizations to create better guidelines for our professionals. Because right now there are there are some like uh, guidelines on certain things. Like the pedigree guideline was like a massive, massive step forward, but it's still not enough. Like our genetic counselors, our genetics professionals don't know how to engage with this population in a you know culturally uh, uh, sensitive way. Um, and a lot of that is going to be fundamentally changing the kind of language that we use. I think we in genetics, like it, we we are so saturated with uh, gendered ideas, like in within genetics, like we do it without thinking all the time. Like I'm a non-binary person. Like I think about this stuff all the time. I think I think very differently about this stuff than a lot of people do. I find myself using gender in like my genetics conversations in ways that make me go, oh, that didn't even occur to me that I was doing that. And like, you know, making assumptions about gender, like uh, 
gendering somebody that I, I have not encountered yet. Uh, I, I, I caught myself the other day when I was talking to somebody who had a carrier testing result saying like, oh, your partner, has he gotten tested? It, it's such a knee-jerk reaction for us to do, and it's everywhere in our language. So for us as a genetics community, to take a really close uh, look at the way that we use our language, and I want to say, particularly, this is another soapbox of mine, the way that we use the terms male and female. I think that we should take a closer look at how we use those words. And I think it's easy for us to get defensive. And I know I'm going off of legislation a little bit, I'm gonna come back to it. Um, but I do think this is important to think about these terms, male and female, uh, because I think sci like scientifically, I think that we often get kind of caught up in like, well, these are scientific words, right? Like these, these words mean scientific things. The problem is that even when we're using the terms like with the word biologically in front of them, like biologically male, biologically female, in our culture, the reality is that the terms male and female are not used purely scientifically. They are used uh, in, in ways that mean like gender and sex. Like male and female are terms that are like all over the spectrum of meaning gender and sex. Like if you look them up in like literally like the Merriam-Webster dictionary, like uh, definitions for male and female are all over the map. So I think we need to start changing our language in a lot of ways, but particularly there and thinking a lot about how can we use more gender neutral language and also how can we be more careful to use the terms assigned male at birth and assigned female at birth much, much, much more frequently than what we're doing now. Um, and this is this is going to be really hard. Like, I'm not saying that this is going to be an easy process. This is going to be incredibly challenging to do, but it's work that we as our community has to do in order to make like this community feel welcome and feel included and feel safe. And that's the other piece of like all of this legislation. Like, I'm not going to try to like go over specifics of this legislation because there are hundreds and hundreds of bills. Like, you know, uh, the um, ACLU put out like, uh, there's like 491 bills, like uh, currently like in the legislative session in uh, right now in 2023. The HRC, which has just in the last month declared a state of emergency for LGBTQIA plus people for the first time in their 40 year history, they have declared a state of emergency for LGBTQ plus people in the United States be because of how dangerous it has become for us. Um, so there are all of these laws, the bathroom bans, like the, um, you know, don't say gay laws, like uh, pronoun bans, gender affirming care bans, all of this stuff. The impact that we need to be most aware of is that our patients are seeing all of these laws be introduced and some of them be passed and knowing that healthcare providers are like part of a greater institution and not knowing what, whether healthcare providers are going to be like, uh, you know, paying attention to these laws and thinking like, oh, like these laws, they, they seem to be trying to like eliminate uh, a group of people from public life. I probably don't need to be particularly like respectful or careful of these people or like these people aren't really people because that's kind of like what all of these laws are attempting to do is to create a reality where our community are not seen as people. That's that's the attempt right now. It's gonna fail. I fully believe it's gonna fail. Like I agree with you, Kira, that it is getting worse right now. I also believe that we're gonna win in the end, but right now we need to be aware that uh, our community, this community is in a very fragile, very endangered space, which is why we need to be particularly careful to be loud about our support for them. That's what we need to do. That was long-winded, but you understand but like, why. So I think I'm seeing, so everybody's nodding. Like everybody's like, yes, like completely echoing, you know, what you're saying and everything. And, and, you know, one of, I wish this was hours long. I have to move on to, you know, a, a last question before we get to the Q and a, 
um, because we have a lot of questions piling up there. So I want to make sure we get to those as many as possible. Um, but the other aspect that I also wanted to cover is how genetic professionals can navigate the intersectionality of LGBTQIA plus identities with other marginalized identities when providing care. Um, I especially, you know, on Juneteenth want, Juneteenth want to acknowledge that aspect too, that, you know, uh, someone mentioned kind of Venn diagram and how there's overlapping and it's not, it's not just one aspect, but it's everything that goes into that and how it can affect care, um, especially when someone identifies as a minority in, in different aspects um, of life and, you know, different, as we say, like different boxes there. Um, any, any thoughts on just, you know, how, you know, as, as we're kind of compounding some of these factors, how that can affect people and, and just being more marginalized because of this? Yeah, Janine. Yeah, I think it's just really important to explicitly acknowledge for ourselves that our society, um, and when I'm saying our society right now, I mean, I'm looking at where the panelists are from and we're talking about like North America, Europe, etc. Um, in these places, our society is really set up for the default person, which is a cishet, white, able-bodied man. Um, and the fewer of those identities that you pass as being, um, the harder time you're going to have of things in general and in healthcare in particular. Um, so I think that's just explicit, really important to explicitly acknowledge, you know, I've, I've been looking at the data coming out about, um, you know, the appalling data coming out of the US about um, life expectancy for black women and, you know, mortality around childbirth, you know, what with the recent um, Olympian who died after, it was just appalling things. Um, so, so yeah, I think that it's just really important for people to be aware that the more intersecting marginalized identities one has, um, the worse of a time you're going to have of things in general. And it's not because of anything inherent to the person. It's because of racism. It's because of heterosexualism. I, that's not a word, just, you know, but you know what I mean? It's about the isms that go along with things rather than it's, it's not because of a failure of the individual. It's the failure of the society that is that surrounds the individual um yeah so it's it's critical to be aware of that stuff I think yeah it really is Katie I was gonna say I think Kira you already brought it up a little bit but I want to kind of add it into the advocacy piece a little bit that a big part of what we can do as healthcare professionals and in a lot of cases involved in research in some way shape or form is to involve these communities these voices in our discussions in our research and how we build our research methods, right? And get, um, have our data more accurately reflect our entire country and our entire community and not just all of those labels um, that Janine already mentioned. Um, and in addition, Andy's already said, be loud, stand up, have hard conversations, speak up for any group that you feel in any of these cases, maybe even more marginalized um, based on a certain policy, a certain um, law, whatever it is. Um, but I really do think really in any area where you're you're having a conversation involving those voices, um, bringing them into those opportunities that we create as healthcare providers. Yeah, it's always going to be better. Like I, I, I know, like in the rare disease space, it's like you want to bring on parents, caregivers, people with rare diseases, like you know, an, an assortment as well as 
genetic experts. And, and I, we do that, you know, um, this is more focused on professionals, but definitely on, on DNA Today, we do that a lot, bringing on voices of, of people that are are directly affected by whatever topic we're talking about. So I think that's very important. And, and just continuously learning and asking questions, like when you don't know, almost to circle back to what we started with um, of, you know, it's, it's okay not to know something. The only way you're going to learn is by asking questions and, you know, reaching out to people and, and attending things like this, you know, for the hundred plus people that are in this listening live today. Um, and so I'm going to get to some um, listener viewer questions. Um, I don't know if people want to be anonymous or not, so I'm just going to make everything anonymous. Um, so the first person asks, as queer GCs, do you come out to patients as part of sessions when relevant as a way to reduce barriers? I'm always on the fence about outing myself during sessions, both as lesbian and also culturally as Jewish. Um, so I don't know if anyone has any, any thoughts. I, I also kind of struggle with this question, like when it's relevant for me to come out and, and when that's just like, why am I sharing personal information versus, oh, I'm creating a space. Janine, how, how do you approach this? I think the question that you have to ask yourself when you, when you find yourself wondering about self-disclosure is who are you doing it for? Like really, truly, really, truly, really, truly, not what story are you telling yourself about it, but who are you actually wanting to do this for? If it's about you, then you absolutely do not self-disclose. If it genuinely is for the patient in some way, then it may be a good idea. Yeah. But that's so, so there is no hard and fast rule here about that stuff, but that, so that's the, the best question that I've ever been able to come up with in terms of helping me figure out what it is that's moti motivating me to want to do it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely agree um, with every aspect of what Janine's just said. But I think I, I always try and abide by that rule. But then I have to bear in mind that I go into clinic wearing my rainbow pin badges, <laughs> pan pin badges, and those signs. I hope I'm doing it for the right reason of it's it's a it's self-disclosure in a way um but I feel like it's gets a little bit it's a little bit more subtle in that you know that's a symbol that you can pick up on if you need to to feel safe but I, I do wonder if not everyone feels that that's that's the case it's a subtle disclosure uh, I was actually having a talk with a student who's about to enter the workforce uh, about this topic recently, and that student uh, identifies as a gay man and was talking about, like, is is it appropriate for me to, like, you know, wear, like, my, like, sort of um, rainbow pins and, like, to kind of, like, in some way visibly, like, uh, flag, like, my queerness. Um, and one of the reasons that he wanted to do it is because he was going to work in a... Uh, a pediatric clinic and he wanted the queer kids to be able to recognize like when like uh that that they were like with somebody who could maybe understand them a little bit better and also might be a little bit safer for them so uh the way that I think about it is I I, I don't think I've ever like verbally disclosed to to a patient um my like and anything about my queer identity however um I am a very visibly queer person in the way that I dress and the way that I uh you know do my hair stuff like that um, so, it, it, you know, people can pick on up on it if they are looking for the clues, they are likely to pick up on that. Um, and I think that that can be incredibly beneficial to a relationship with a patient who might recognize themselves in you. And I want to um, take that question and uh, like 
pivot just a tiny bit to just, uh, we don't have time for this, but uh, I'm gonna just say professionalism in our, uh, like, in our professional environment uh, can be a way of forcing people to hide their identities in ways that I think can be very harmful to our patients when they can't see themselves represented uh, by their healthcare providers. Like not, not everybody is guaranteed to get a healthcare provider who like has a similar identity, but when we do, it can be a really profoundly beneficial uh, experience for them. So I think that this is a conversation for a different time, but we as a community have to have a discussion about what professionalism means, particularly in like the way that we limit um, personal expression. Yeah, definitely. I think that's great. If you have, I don't, I don't wear a badge because I'm in such a small private practice, but if I had some kind of lanyard, like I see Joe wearing, like I would love to just put my pins on there. Cause oh my gosh, I have so many pins that I wish I could like show, but yeah, I have to rethink kind of how I want to do that more. Um, a question that I, you know, I can uh, definitely relate to here to a certain extent at different places I've been a student at and stuff. Do you have tips on how to get admin or management to listen to us about these forms, et cetera? A frustrated queer GC is how they signed it. So, you know, I think that goes back to our conversation, like making sure we're using someone's pronouns and not using a dead name, which we haven't mentioned before, but someone's, you know, legal name that they don't use anymore uh, that maybe doesn't align with their gender. Um, so any any success stories of ways that you guys have been able to talk with other healthcare providers that are meeting with patients you know, as we talked about, like, you know, the 20 people or whatever they're talking to before they get to you, which, you know, that number is going to differ how big your place is. But um, any any success stories or, or thoughts on just like kind of a, a tip on how to approach those conversations? I don't have any success stories or anything like that. But I think what I always want to try and bring it back to is, you know, so I think with all of these things, because it can be it can be difficult on the surface, right, because this stuff has been so politicized. But at the deeper level, like if you ask the question about why anybody goes into healthcare, for the most part, people go into healthcare because they want to help people. They want, so if you can connect to that with people to help them understand that, hey, you're doing your job, you do what you do because you you care and you want to help people. And hey, did you know there's this whole group of people that you're not going to be able to help unless we do these things? Um, that's the best I've got, basically. Um, and are you going to win every heart and mind? No, you're not. Um, but, you know, you, you're not. No, you're not going to. But but I think that that's that that's the best I've got in terms of if you, you know, because for some people, it's going to be a very straightforward conversation. It's going to be, oh, I never even thought of that. Yeah, you're right. Let's do it immediately. But the, for the people that are more difficult um, or for the situations that are more difficult, that's the, that's what I got. I don't know if anybody else has anything better to suggest. Um, I, I am actually going to say, and feel free to agree, disagree with me, any, anybody who has other opinions, I, I'm going to say, don't waste your energy. Like if, if you have genuinely tried, uh, if you, if you have made an attempt, if you have made your case, um, th there are going to be people that are not going to be convinced by logic. Okay. Uh, and I think that a place that you might be able to use your energy better is going to these larger, uh, institutions and organizations and trying to get them to, uh, change things on a bigger level so that then like when we have these institutional guidelines that we really, really need that say like, hey, this is what your intake form should look like, then all of us, not just on an individual level, but on, as a community, we can then go to like our higher ups and be like, this is the guideline. And that's, that's what they'll listen to. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I think the trickle down effect, like, you know, we think about cascade genetic testing, like go, go high and then kind of have it all, all trickle down there. 
When it comes to terms, obviously, you know, different cultures are going to use different terms and even just like languages and, and, and the ability to use neutral terms. Um, so, you know, someone is asking in English, you can use he, she, they, but in other languages, you don't have any neutral terms or pronouns to choose between. It's really just he or she, you know, I'm thinking of uh, maybe Spanish as, as, as being one. Um, so this might change the approach in other countries. Do you have any references, suggestions? And I'm also going to tack on another question because this kind of goes together that someone is asking, um, you know, Mr., Mrs., what is an alternative for someone that's non-binary that maybe doesn't have a doctorate where <laughs> you can say doctor um, and that's a neutral term. So kind of just any, any thoughts on, you know, languages in terms of this, Katie. Um, my first thought personally for like the Mr. Mrs. just like drop the whole thing. Like yeah. it's an unnecessary societal construct that doesn't really mean anything anymore. Um, so just use their name. <laughs> that would be my recommendation for that. And if people People think it's a professional um, way of referring to individuals. And I think that that's outdated and, and becoming more and more outdated with new generations. Um, so, but that's my own personal soapbox there. And in terms of, um, uh, oh, what was your other question? Like the pronouns, like oh. um, he, she, they, other yes, languages. thank you. I think um, I, I'm unaware, but I think the... It, without knowing, my first thought is to go to people in those communities and ask, yep. <laughs> right? What what is the, hey, you pass the, the test. Is there discussion <laughs> around what people like to, what terminology people like to use? Um, and so ask the questions, learn from people who are in it and what their preferences are, and that will change throughout time. And you're going to have to keep asking the question. Um, so that's, that's my thought on it, but I don't have an answer. I think it's different in every culture, every community. Yeah. And, and that brings up a good point that people's pronouns can change over their life too. I don't, we haven't said that, that I remember in this conversation. Um, so just because you know, someone's pronouns from years ago, it's good just to check in or just, you know, look at their, uh, you know, email signature, like a lot of people that I'm communicating with will include um, pronouns there. So that's kind of an easy thing, or you look at a bio online or something. Um, but just checking in, you know, even if you have an old intake form from last year, don't assume that that's going to be the same. Just don't assume, right? I think that's our main thing. Janine, I think you were going to tack on something. I was going to tack on so many things. I don't actually. <laughs> so, um, no, so I completely agree with everything Katie said. And I think that um, this is this is exactly what we mean when we say cultural humility. This is, um, this is like we as a panel are not the people who have all the answers. Like, no, I, I don't know all of the cultural stuff that applies in your country. I don't know where you are. Um, so the, the cultural humility means asking the question that you did, but when we tell you that we're the wrong people, you find the right people to ask that question to. And, and that that's your work. That's the work of being an ally. That's So thank you for asking the question. Keep asking it. Ask it to the people that are, know the answer. Um, that's awesome. And then... Um, totally also agree with just drop the whole like doc miss, 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 miss use first names yeah. like yeah really like we do when you get some from the waiting room i have yeah. not used a last name ever um you know and i i'm i'm a i'm not a baby gc anymore maybe i'm a toddler gc now i don't know but you know i've only been in the field so long but i've i've never used a last name when getting someone from a waiting room the only time i use it is consult letters chart notes and even with this conversation, I kind of want to approach and say, hey, can we just use first names? Like, you know, I, I think that's accurate. I do try um, sometimes to go for initial last name when calling someone from a waiting room because I'm aware that our patient record systems are so 
bad in so many ways. They don't get updated efficiently when someone changes their name. And I don't know if that's the current name that someone is still using. And especially, yeah, when you have what can be really unfortunately gendered waiting rooms saying, you know, Kay Gallagher, A Cantor. I'm going to say your name wrong. I'm sorry. Don't know how to pronounce Cantor. <laughs> Jay Austin. You know, it uh, doesn't, you don't have to go with an honorific. You don't accidentally say a dead name that completely misgenders someone. Um, but yeah, it's. It, this is also yeah. a place where, oh, sorry. Sorry, Jay. Go on. No, carry on. I was just. This is also off. a place where intake forms would help. Yep. Exactly. You'll know what they want to be called because you've asked them. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, I, I'm looking at the intake form before I grab them and, and instead of like, you know, that's the first thing I look at. Um, but yes, I mean, I, I don't have an EMR, which is, you know, kind of a different situation. So I'm looking at something mm. they just filled out the last week. Um, and, you know, this but... reflects the state of, you know, the genetic centers in, in the UK where we might have really long wait lists. I don't know how it compares in the States, but the name Canada, someone... I want to say also has that Janine like long wait lists. Yeah. Yeah. And we've not got those intake forms. We've got whatever their medical record said a year ago. Yeah. So that's a great approach. I never even thought of that. I'm, oh my gosh, I'm learning so much. This is amazing. Um, to move on to our next question. Um, someone is asking, um, how do you make this new pedigree approach widespread, even within one clinic? How do you indicate where, when the change has been made in a historical pedigree? Um, not sure exactly what they mean by that second part of the question. Um, but, you know, Janine, as someone that has, you know, been very active with pedigree nomenclature, have you given advice to other people or just what you guys have done, like in your own, like, you know, with your research participants and everything? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as with everything, communication is the key, you know, so it's just, it's about having a, a conversation with your department or whatever about, hey, this is the new guidance. Um, so it's just, it's literally, this is practice guidelines. So this isn't like, hey, maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. This is like literal practice guidelines. So, so th in, this is basically saying that if you want to do it right, then you, this is how you should be doing it. So, um, you know, some kind of like in-service, grand rounds, whatever it is, something for, for members of your department to learn about what's going on. Um, and what was, oh, the second part of the question, I think I understood that to mean, how can you tell the difference between a pedigree that was drawn pre-new guidance and the one now? Um, and that's a great question, which I hadn't actually thought about until right now, um, but I can think of different ways of, I mean, you, you know, there may be some indicators that will be really obvious, like if it, if it does say AMAB or AFAB somewhere on it, that tells you straight away. Um, but, you know, you could actually make a note somewhere on that. We make all sorts of notes on the sides of the pedigrees that we draw about various different things. This could be one of them, you know, like, you know, if it doesn't say 2022 guidance followed, then, you know, it was an old one or something. So you check it. Um, so I don't know. There's all sorts of different creative ways that you could go about that, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an interesting um, consideration of whether, whether, we should have let more of a legend on pedigrees that explicitly defines what circle, square, diamond, et cetera, means it, um, in addition to referencing the, the paper um, so that anyone looking at it, you know, understands that we're, we're noting gender. Um, and 
that could also be an easy way to reflect a change that's happened is to just explicitly put a legend on there. Yeah. I know that's probably what we all should do, but I don't commonly see legends on pedigrees. <laughs> yeah. Unless I'm making one really pretty. Cause I'm saying it to another genetic counselor. Right? I don't, don't really do them, but um, I have another question that Katie, I would love to have, um, you know, your insight on as someone that works at a genetic counseling program. Um, this person writes as a queer incoming first year student who is eager to hit the ground running with advocacy work. I was wondering if the panel would be willing to share any advice they may have on self-care and preventing advocacy burnouts, specifically when we're fighting for ourselves and our own community. This whole concept about educating others on ourselves can be exhausting, which I agree with. Katie, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there was an interesting talk at, uh, was it ACMG about minority tax um, and this idea that you're constantly having you're you're constantly having to um you know put more effort into just explaining yourself to people um I hope that this person is landing in a program that is already um set up in a way where that doesn't have to be something that's necessarily um explained or examined in any way um it's always lovely in training programs to have different voices and to have people bring their experiences into a classroom setting. And I think that makes a more well-rounded experience for everyone. And we hope that everyone brings their cultural experiences, their life experiences into a classroom um, for the benefit of everyone else. But I know that can be exhausting to be explaining uh, something that feels um, kind of uh, unheard of to some people, for example. Um, so uh, it's, it's not something, I personally think it's not something that's necessary in every setting. Um, it's when you feel you have the capacity to be entering into these areas. No one in the queer community has an obligation to advocate for the queer community, right? They can just be. Um, and so I think that that's something to remind yourself of. We're in spaces right now where we can all contribute and there's times in our lives where we can contribute more than others. Um, and I think that can be said for any student entering a program, any genetic professional at any point in time, um, and to give yourself a little bit of grace when it feels like you're in a time where you can't be as involved as other people in the community might be. I want to very quickly tack on to that. Um, we need you, like we need you in the community. Um, and also like, make sure that you have your support network, make sure that you have your personal support network and also make sure that you have a professional support network, like find your people within the community. They're going to be the people that are going to like take care of you. Like when you are burned out, like the people that you can like vent to the people that you can kind of like, uh, you know, sometimes ask like, Hey, I don't have the bandwidth for this. Like, could you do this? Or could you like collaborate with me on this? That's uh, like in my personal experience, like I, I felt very alone doing this work uh, when I started to do it. And the longer I've done it, the less alone I've found because the more of my community that I've found that that's my biggest recommendation is find your people. Um, and if you're having trouble with that, uh, you can find my email online. Feel free to reach out to me directly and I can connect you. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, we can kind of direct people. Um, I know my email address is info at dnatoday.com. So feel free to email me and say, I'm looking to reach this person and then I will connect you um, because maybe we're your people, you know? And I think if, you know, I don't want to speak for you guys, but I always love connecting with people that want to become genetic counselors. And it's a bonus if you're in our community, because, you know, then it's like, wow, double whammy. Like we're really, you know, uh, very like-minded people. Um, but I, I have to say, this has just been 
incredible. You guys have shared so much amazing insight. And I just really, from the bottom of my queer heart, want to thank you guys for coming on and just sharing your personal experiences and just all the insight you have in genetics and how this relates to providing you know, affirming care for people and allowing people to get the right care and for people on the other side, healthcare providers, which is most people listening, um, to be able to provide that and, and learn. And so, you know, we're obviously going to continue doing these webinars, you know, I hope every June. Um, but I really appreciate everybody that is, you know, tuning in live to this people that have listened afterwards. I'm sure there's, you know, unfortunately there's more questions that we didn't get to. Um, but please email those questions. in. again, you can email them into um, me, I don't have the phenotypes um, email right in front of me. So you can send them in to me and I will, you know, include phenotypes people. That's info at dnatoday.com. You will see a feedback link in your browser when this webinar ends. And it's also going to be emailed to you, but please take a minute to offer feedback and help us improve upcoming series installments. Um, the link is also going, to, the email is also going to include a link to the Phenotip Speaker Series page where you can sign up to receive alerts on upcoming sessions, uh, which is fantastic if you do want to join live. You can go directly to phenotips.com, um, hit the resources tab, and then you'll see the speaker series in that drop-down menu. All installments are on there. Uh, Phenotips speaker series is also available as a podcast on Spotify, Apple, wherever you guys get your podcasts. Um, and if you want to check out DNA Today, you can also search that on social media and podcast players. But thank you so much guys for coming on. We are one minute over, but uh, not bad with how much information that we were able to squeeze in here, but thank you everybody for tuning in. This is just, I, I can't say it enough. This has just been incredible. I am very, very grateful to have the four of you on for this call. It's just, it's, it's been fabulous. So thank you all so much. Thanks for tuning in everybody. Happy practice.